All right. So Judges chapter 6 is where we finna be. So if you haven't been with us uh, lately, or if you just don't pay attention, that's okay. Still love you. Um, But uh, we are doing a series in the book of Judges called Fractured. So I think this is, I'm not sure what week this is exactly. I think it's like four four or five maybe. Um, But we've been kind of looking at the book of Judges, and the book of Judges follows a similar pattern, right? So what you have is the people of Israel uh, are doing great, and then uh, they disobey God. They, They walk in disobedience, and then God disciplines them by allowing them to be oppressed by an enemy nation, and then through, over, through that oppression, they end up calling out to God. God raises up a judge or a deliverer for them. And then they ultimately, they are liberated. They're freed. They have years of peace and prosperity. And then that peace and prosperity brings them right back to doing what they did in the first place, where they sin, and then the cycle continues, right? So that's really what we see throughout the book of Judges. Now, so tonight, I want everybody to do something for me. Um, and I want to encourage you to try and do this without talking, okay? So I want everybody, if you have your phone, all right, if you, if, and if you have a phone that has like a front-facing camera, you know what I'm saying? So like where you can look at it kind of like you're looking at, a mi- like at yourself in a mirror, you know. Uh, I want everybody to pull that out and just look, have, look at your face, okay? Now, if you don't have that, uh, if you can, pull out your phone, and uh, if you can't just, like, find a picture of yourself, because I know you guys just love taking pictures of yourself. Um, but I want you to just, I want everybody to, without talking, without distracting the person to your left or to your right, I want you to look at your face, okay? I want you to just kind of look at what you see. I want you to kind of use it as a mirror. I just want you to simply look at yourself. And I want you to think about what you see. I want you to think about the face of the person that you're looking at. Look at that face as if it is somebody who is not you. I want you to just make some some basic observations right off the bat, right? So, like, what color is the person's hair? Right? Like, what color are their eyes? Do they have freckles or or scars? Do, Do they have long hair, short hair? So on. Just some basic observations. Now I want you to kind of take things a little bit deeper. As you look at that face, you say, does that that person appear to be like a happy person? Do they seem tired? Do they seem confident? Maybe they, they look like they're insecure. Do they look like somebody who has a lot of status? What are some of the traits that, are, that you think that this person would seem to have that are, like, useful? Like, what are some good traits that that person seems like they would have? Do you think that there's things that hold that person back as you look at that face? Are they popular? How many in the people in the room know the name of the person that you are looking at? Do people like them? I know people get really uncomfortable looking at themselves. I want you to continue to look at your, at the picture of yourself, okay? And if you don't have one, that's fine, but just. Here's another question. Do you like the face that you're looking at? And not necessarily just the looks. I'm talking, do you like the person you're looking at? And now one final question. 
as you look at the face before you, as you think about this person, ask yourself this question. Is this person that I'm looking at useful for the kingdom of God? And when you consider all the things, all the observations that you have made, all the things that you know about this person, are they, are, is this person useful for the kingdom of God or not? And I have another question for you in relation to that last question. It's this, is what makes that person useful for the kingdom of God? So if you say, yes, that, that face is useful for the kingdom of God, I want you to ask yourself, okay, what makes them useful? And if your answer is no, they're not useful for the kingdom of God, then I want you to ask yourself another question. Ask yourself, what would it take for that person to be useful? That's the question that I want us to really talk about tonight. I mean, you all can look back up at me now. You can look at me. That's the question I want us to talk about is this. Is what makes someone useful for the kingdom of God? The question is quite simple. I mean, it's a simple question. What makes someone useful for the kingdom of God? But the answers come in many different shapes and sizes. Right? That face that you've been looking at, that you were looking at for the past several minutes, the positives, the negatives, everything that comes to mind when you look at that face, what makes them useful for the kingdom of God? Or what would have to be true in order for them to be useful for the kingdom of God? And I ask this question because there's a sin that plagues people young and old. Right? There's a sin that plagues most Christians. I would say if there's one sin in this room that would be the most prominent amongst all of us, including myself, you know, we would all probably have different thoughts of what it would be. What it, maybe it would be, you know, you know, lack of self-control in the things that we say. Or, or perhaps for some people, like, you know, lust is a big issue nowadays. Maybe it's that. Or, or maybe, you know, like we got a bunch of liars in here. I don't know. But if I was to say that there's one sin that is the most prominent in this room, in our churches, in our community today amongst Christians, it is this sin of ignoring the Great Commission. I know a lot of us don't look at it that way, but that is what it is. That the great commission, or the the great commandment, the last commandment that Jesus gives to his followers, to you and me, before he ascends to be with the Father... Right, one of, the, one of the, the clearest commands and most straightforward commands in all of the Bible is so frequently ignored and so frequently disobeyed. I know a lot of us, especially if we grew up in church, we hear the, the idea of the Great Commission, and maybe, you know, you just kind of like, you hear it and you almost grow numb to it, right? Maybe you can recite it, like Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go, therefore, and make disciples of all people, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And though I am with you even to the end of the age, we can recite it. But do you live it? Because I want you to understand something that's very, very, very important, that it's not just like a spiritual platitude. It's not just like it's a spiritual cliche that we say all the time. If you are not living your life intentionally making disciples, you are walking in direct disobedience to the final command of Jesus when he was on this earth. That's a, like, boom, sobering thought. Not just for you all, but for me, right? It can be very easy for me to say, well, I preach every week. 
I teach middle school, high school, and college students three times a week. I'm making disciples, but here's the question. Am I? Right? Am I making disciples? Like, if I didn't preach on, on, you know, three times a week, would I actually make disciples or not? But let's not just leave it there, though, because we acknowledge this. But here's the thing. Why? Why do we ignore this command? Why do we not take the gospel to people who we know need it? Why do we not make disciples? I think there's several possible answers, but I think for most people, for many people, especially people in this room, it's not because we don't want to, right? I think that if you're genuinely a Christian, like, man, you love the idea of making disciples, right? Like, you love the idea of it. Sounds great. But I think what it really boils down to for many people is this. Is that really what we have is not that we don't want to or whatever, but really the answer is perhaps we just don't see ourselves as useful. Or we see ourselves as useful, but we see ourselves as useful for all the wrong reasons. You know what I'm trying to say? See, over the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. All right, so Judges chapter 6, you know, we've kind of hit like a judge a week, but we're going to take the story of Gideon and we're going to spread it out over two weeks. Because next to Samson, probably the most well-known person in the book of Judges is Gideon. Right, outside of like, you know, like, the big amigos like Moses, Abraham, right? You know, trying to say, like, if there was like a, this sounds so bad to say, but if there was like, you know, like a level two of really well-known Bible characters in the Old Testament, you're like, well, Gideon would be up there, right? Man, we like, we, we, you know, there's so much in the story of Gideon and someone that, you know, someone that we would all agree God used in an incredible way for the kingdom of God. If you don't know the story of Gideon, that's okay. You're going to learn today, right? But ultimately, it's this idea that, man, we would look at the story of Gideon and we say, man, that is somebody who did incredible things for the kingdom of God. That we would say, really, that that is someone who is useful. Really, all the people that we look at in, the, in Scripture, right, Old Testament and New Testament, that did incredible things for the kingdom of God, we would look at them and say, man, like, those are useful people. Tonight, I want us to look at the story of Gideon, and I want us to ask ourselves, what makes a man or a woman useful for the kingdom of God? Like, if you want to be used, make yourself usable. It's kind of like, so, like, I, I've shared with you guys often, like, I grew up playing sports. I grew up playing sports, and, and, and especially, like, when you're playing Pop Warner, right, like, you're playing in, like, Everybody's like, every parent is kind of like, like, I want my baby to play. You know what I'm saying? Like, like, coach, put my baby on the field or something like that. He's like, eh, you know. But and here's what happens is a lot of people get disappointed that they're not playing as much as they would want. They're not getting the playing time that they feel like they deserve. But here's the thing is that they do nothing to make themselves better and thus deserving of more playing time. It's like if you want to play, practice and make yourself better so that you'll be worthy of playing. 
When it comes to being useful for the kingdom of God, I think a lot of us say, man, I want God to use me, but how much time do you spend thinking about God? What do I need to do to make myself usable? Or what am I doing currently that is making me unusable? We're going to look at the story of Gideon. The first thing I want us to see in this passage is this, the signs of uselessness. The signs of uselessness. Now, this is not necessarily something that you're probably going to hear a ton of, you know, especially student pastors talk about. It's like, how do you know if you're a useless Christian? That sounds terrible to say, all right? But I think all of us maybe at some point find ourselves in kind of like this useless Christian state. But here's the thing, like, it's not a permanent state, okay? So don't get discouraged. But what are the signs of uselessness? We're going to read verses 1 through 6. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What else is new? And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel. And because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. So once again, we see Israel in a familiar place. All right, once again, we see Israel in a similar spot that we've seen them several times in the book of Judges, right? Their sin has led them directly into the discipline of God. Now, I'm sure that there's people in this room that you're hearing, oh, like, man, like, you're trying, and you're, you're trying to kind of, like, jump ahead of me. You say, all right, Mike, are you saying that if someone sins that they're, use, they're useless for the kingdom of God? No, that's not what I'm saying. Because if that was the case, then, like, all of us would fall into that category, Right? All of us would fall into that category. I'm not, here, I'm not preaching Christian perfectionism, okay? So don't, so don't get ahead of me. But well, here's what I am saying. All right, that's not what I'm oh, sorry. That's, so that's not what I'm saying. But here's what I am saying. We need to look at this, right? When we see the phrase, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, which we see constantly in the book of Judges, the specific sin that is being addressed here is covenantal unfaithfulness. That sounds super big. But here's what I'm trying to say. Basically, what it is, is they have broken the covenant that God has established with them as a people. Ultimately, they have done this by worshiping other gods. Okay? So, most of the time, what you're going to see in the book of Judges, when it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, what it's saying is that they had exchanged worshiping God and had exchanged that for worshiping false gods. So, so what we're seeing is when we see that Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're not talking about a one-time slip-up. We're not talking about the people of Israel were walking one day. One of them stubbed their toe and was like, blah, 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 and then they're like, oh, here we go. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is willful, unrepentant rebellion against God in exchange for worshiping the false gods of the culture around them. That's what we're talking about. Okay, and let's look at what we have here in the case of the people of Israel. So, like, keep that in, back, in the back of your mind, right back there. Okay, keep that in mind. 
Most of the story that we're going to read in the story of Gideon takes place in an area called the Jezreel Valley. Now, if you ever go to Israel, which I've had the opportunity to go twice, the Jezreel Valley is pretty incredible. It is one of the most fertile places in the entire world. Literally, if you were to stand on Mount Carmel and look out into the Jezreel Valley, you would just see farmland after farmland after farmland after farmland. It is some of the most nutri- like some of the most nurtured and fertile soil in anywhere in the world. It is the breadbasket of the nation of Israel, and it is like the agricultural center of the nation. As we look at verse six, what is it that Israel is lacking? Or sorry, in these six verses, when we look at verse 4, what is it that Israel is lacking? It says that there was no sustenance in, the, in Israel. You see that? This story takes place in the most fertile place in Israel. And it says that there was no sustenance for Israel. And no sheep or ox or donkey. And here's the question. How is that possible? How is that possible? They have all of the land. They have all the soil that they could ever need. They have all the resources they could ever need to have this sustenance. They have everything they could possibly need. But what do we see? We see that ultimately their sinfulness that led them into the oppression of the Midianites destroyed it, right? We see that their sinfulness has made their strengths turn out to ultimately be their weaknesses. And here's one thing that we need to understand. Unrepentant sin makes the useful useless. Unrepentant sin, unacknowledged sin will take that which is useful and turn it into being useless. You with me? See, there are people all over the place, people that I know personally, who serve in churches. Even some that used to serve in churches that don't serve in churches anymore. They have all the skills in the world. People that I would consider to be dear friends. All the skills in the world. They're, they're charismatic. They're wonderful communicators. They have talent that sets them apart from the rest of their colleagues. I would say even that like, they're more talented than me. All this skill. All of these things that could make them useful. But they have rendered themselves useless simply because of their unrepentant sinful lifestyle. Right? They were unable to enjoy the fruit of their labor, the people of Israel, right? They worked hard. What they, they would plant, they would plant the food, the seeds, and they would, they would grow the food, all this stuff, wonderful stuff. And when it came time to harvest, what happened? Midianites, Amalekites, and the, the, the termites, right? All of them came in, took all of their stuff, and dipped out. They worked all this time, all of this labor, and they were unable to enjoy it. They were unable to enjoy the fruit of their labor, and because of, and it was because of their sin, right? Because of their sin, they became slaves to their work rather than finding satisfaction in it. Right? As we established earlier, right, the real issue was that Israel was going after gods of the nations around them. In essence, they were becoming just like the, country, the nations around them. Right? Th- th- this was an area of the land that was supposed to be man. If you needed food, you go here, but they can't get food. Why? Because their sinfulness led them to this point that that which was once useful has now become useless. I want you to know, guys, that I don't care how well you can sing. I don't care how well you can communicate. I don't care how many Bible verses you've memorized. 
If there's areas of sin in your life that you refuse to address, God will not use you. Simple as that. But then what we see ultimately is that they begin worshiping the the gods of the nations around them. They become just like the people around them. Which brings me to our second sign. Our second sign of uselessness is this. A Christian that looks no different than the world that they are called to reach is of very little use. A Christian that looks no different than the world that they are called to reach is of very little use. Repeatedly, we see in the Old Testament, and especially here in the book of Judges, that the people of Israel would worship Baal. Right? Baal. Right? We're actually going to see this in just a moment, that this is ultimately what, they do, what they're doing. They're worshiping the, uh, uh, this false pagan god. Here's the question. What was the big deal about this? What was the big deal of worshiping Baal? I'm so glad you asked, okay? Ultimately, what we see is this, that Baal was the pagan god that controlled the weather. He was the pagan god that controlled the weather, and for many people in this area of the world, the weather, in particular the rain, was a vital part of their civilization, right? If it doesn't rain, then you don't have food. If you don't have food, you don't have a civilization, and you die. So they would worship this pagan god of the weather, hoping that it will be a major factor in whether they have food or not. You see, for the pagan nations around them, this makes total sense, right? To the pagan nations around them, this makes total sense. All right, we have a, we have a god for this, we have a god for that, we have a god for the weather, so if I need it to rain for my crops, I'm going to worship that god, hoping to appease him so that he'll give me what I need. But for Israel, it's utterly ridiculous, because what you see is that they're worshiping Baal alongside God. This is totally ridiculous. Why? Because the God of Israel is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one that created the earth and everything that is in it simply with his words. We see later on in, in the New Testament when Jesus walks on the water and he, and he calms the sea. What is it that the disciples say? They're like, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? The God of Israel was the God that truly controlled the weather. What were they doing? They were worshiping a pagan God that doesn't even exist, asking him to do it. You see, Israel cannot testify about a God that is better than Baal while they seek Baal to fulfill their needs. You see where I'm going with this? Right? See, likewise, this world does not care what you have to say about God as long as your life shows otherwise. See, how can we sit back and say that we serve an almighty, all-satisfying God, meanwhile we chase after the same things the world chases after? How can we say God supplies all my needs, he is so wonderful, he's so much of all these things, but the very things that leave the world unsatisfied also leave us unsatisfied? That God is so great. He's so wonderful. He's all of these wonderful things. We sit back and talk about how God is all satisfying while we constantly run to the same things that the world runs to for satisfaction. See, when we do that, we render our testimony useless. Romans 12, 2, what does it say? Do not be conformed to to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, Scripture makes it very clear that we are to be set apart. This does not mean that we have our Christian bubble and we ignore the world. What this means is that we are clearly, there is supposed to be a difference between us and the world that we are called to reach. Please understand that the quickest way to make yourself useless for the purposes of God is to pursue the same things that the world pursued. See, Israel was sent into Canaan to be a light, and they ended up becoming just like the darkness. What it did was it made them useless. See, the last sign of uselessness is to be found in verse 6. It says, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, on the surface, this seems to be totally fine, right? Get to a bad moment, they cry out to God for help. But what I want us to understand here, I want us to see something. I want us to see, like, when is it that they finally begin to cry out to God? It wasn't until after they were brought to their breaking point. In essence, what you see is that prayer was neglected until they realized that they needed it. Right? I want you, I want you to understand something, guys. And this is going to sound kind of harsh, but it's very important. There is no greater sign of, a, of, of uselessness than a Christian that does not pray. There's no greater sign of uselessness than the Christian that does not pray. And I say this like as it convicts me. I'm telling you, if there's one area of my life that I wish I engaged in more, it's prayer. Now, this isn't to say that I don't, I, I never pray, but it's this idea of, man, like, you can never pray enough. And so many of us are so content relying on our gifts and our skill sets and, and all of the things that make us comfortable. We're so content to just rely on those things and then go to God where we need help rather than to just rely. Turn it off. Rely solely on God, right? right? This is super convicting. But how often do I find myself trying to do things for God's glory but doing them without prayer? How many times do you find yourself, even when you do share the gospel, but you don't pray about it? That you don't pray for the person you're speaking to? When you know good and well that you cannot save that person, only God can save that person, but you don't even talk to him about it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Here's the thing, how often do you pray? How often do you pray? See, one of the most influential men in all of the Old Testament was a man named Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, you'll see this. Because that what was the one thing that was a consistent practice in Daniel's life? It was prayer. He prayed several times a day. Ultimately, it was his prayer life that got him sent into the lion's den. And many of us are not sent into the lion's den, not because we're doing what God wants us to do. We're not sent into the lion's den because we're not doing anything that the world would see worthy of a lion's den. We're just blending in. Daniel was one of the most influential people in all of Scripture. And the one thing that he, we see that was consistent was he had to consistently practice his prayer life. I think of David and all of the Psalms. 
Nehemiah, Paul, Moses, Joshua, Samuel, Hannah, Mary, Jesus, and so on. Some of the most influential people and impactful people for the kingdom of God throughout the history of the world. What did they all have in common? A regular practice of humbling themselves before their heavenly father in prayer. Emphasis on regular practice. Not just when they were going to eat a meal. Right? Man, if Jesus prayed, how much more should I pray? Now, why is prayer so important? Because of what we're going to see next, right? We saw the signs of uselessness. Now I want to see the signs of usefulness. Verses 7 through 10. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. All right, so we're yet to get to our main character, right? Like, we're yet to get to Gideon. We haven't even seen Gideon show up in the story. And I'm sure you're just on pins and needles. You're just anticipating, man, like, when are we getting to Gideon, right? We're getting ready for Gideon to jump onto the scene. But we see God do something here that he has not done at all to this point in the book of Judges. That he sends a prophet. Now, let me give you just as, as a side note. So there's, there's something that I've, we've talked about before, especially when we did our study in the book of Hebrews. There's something called types and shadows. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about? If not, I'm going to explain it, so don't worry, all right? In the Old Testament, you see something called types and shadows. Ultimately, what this is, is that there are things, that, there, are, there are real people, real circumstances, real events that act as a foreshadowing of Christ, right? One of the most obvious examples of this would be Abraham sacrificing Isaac, right? Goes to sacrifice Isaac, and as the knife is coming down, the angel stops him. Ultimately, there's a ram caught in the thicket. And who is it that dies in place of Isaac? The ram, right? What do we see? That Jesus is the ram that died in our place, right? Another, so what, that ram is a type and shadow of Christ. David and Goliath, another example, right? A lot of people like to say that Goliath is the problems in your life. And no, what we see is that ultimately that, like, Goliath was Saul's responsibility to deal with as the king, and he couldn't defeat Goliath, but God sent David to do what Saul couldn't, and that was to defeat his enemy. What do we see? David is a type and shadow of Christ, right? He defeated our enemy of sin and death when we couldn't, right? So this is this idea of types and shadows. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because of what, what we're about to see, all right? God is going to send a deliverer to Israel to save them from their bondage. But before he does, he sends a prophet to prepare the way for their deliverer. Does that sound familiar at all? How so? John the Baptist, bingo, right? Right. This prophet goes before Gideon because before they could respond to the work of Gideon, they had to, have, they had to be prepared for the work of Gideon, right? Before they could respond 
to the work of Gideon. They had to be prepared for the work of Gideon. See, likewise, we see this with John the Baptist, right? That he went before Jesus, and his message was very simple. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, I want us to pay close attention to something, right? That when we talk about what it means to be useful in the hands of God, I think there are few examples as wonderful as this prophet. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I've read the story of Gideon like a bajillion times in my life, and I totally forgot that there was a prophet in this story. Totally forgot. Right? Here's a question. What was the prophet's name? Good answer. We don't have his name. Okay? Good job. Right? We don't have his name. We don't know who this prophet is. I want us to see that we, we know very little about this prophet. All we know was that he was faithful to proclaim the message that God gave him. Here's the thing. We know his message, but we don't even know his name. And, man, that'll preach. We know his message, but we don't know his name. And that's important because I think for so many of us, would rather the world know our name than our message. We would prefer the world know our name than the world know our message. Some of the most powerfully used people in the kingdom of God are the people that will go totally unnoticed by most people. They don't get book deals. They don't have the large following on social media. They don't, they don't serve in the mighty mega churches. And of all intents and purposes, outside of the people that they immediately impact, no one will ever remember their names. But some of the most impactful and useful people for the kingdom of God are the people that the world doesn't even know. Man, when we talk about what it means to be useful in the kingdom of God, here's the thing. I'm not saying that if you're well-known, you're not useful. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is don't pursue fame over faithfulness. One of the most powerful quotes I've ever heard was a quote by... A man named um, what, uh, Nicholas Ludwig. I want you to hear this, this quote. He says, the missionary must seek nothing for himself, no seat of honor or hope of fame. Like the cab horse in London, each of you must wear blinders that blind you to every danger and to every snare and conceit. You must be content to suffer, to die, and to be forgotten. A similar quote is attributed to Ludwig as well, and it's this. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. I think of John the Baptist, right? John 3.30, what does he say? When his disciples see, the, the disciples of John the Baptist see Jesus baptizing, right? Or they, or they see Jesus' disciples baptizing, and, and, and they're like, man, hey, like, should we stop them? And what does he say? He's like, no, he must increase, I must decrease. He goes, he must become greater, I must become less. I want you to know that if you're not okay with living your life, preaching the gospel, dying, and being forgotten, you're probably not as useful as you think. Because for many of us, the thing that keeps us from being useful is not our skills, it's our egos. It's our pride. So many Christians have very little impact on the world for the kingdom of God because they would rather be known than make Jesus known. They would rather be found famous rather than faithful. They would rather their name be known rather than their message be known. And what was the message of this unnamed prophet? 
Well, he reminds the people of who uh, he reminds the people who God is, right? What God has done, and he confronts them with the reality of their sin, right? The prophet reminds them of God's faithfulness in the past, right? He brought you out of Egypt. And he does this in order to point them to the fact that God will be faithful in the future, that God will not neglect you. See, Israel needed to be reminded that God still loved them and that, and that God has not abandoned them. They needed to be reminded of who God was and what he has done and what he still could do. And we need to always remember that our job as Christians is not necessarily to proclaim new things. Right? The prophet hasn't said anything that they didn't already know. Like the job of a pastor is not to get on stage and to say things you've never heard before. Now, there's probably going to be times where, yeah, they have said, I've never heard that before. But the job of a pastor, and not only the dad, but the job of a Christian is not to tell people what they've never heard before. Oftentimes, it's to remind people of what they have forgotten. And some of you in this room, you don't need me to tell you something you've never heard. You need me to remind you that God loves you. You need me to remind you that God is faithful. You need me to remind you of how he's been faithful in the past so that you can be encouraged to know that he'll be faithful in the future. However, it's not all, you know, bubblegum and rainbows. The prophet does have a responsibility to tell the, re- the, tell the people the reason for their suffering. Likewise, you and I have a job to do. We have to tell people the reason for their suffering, which is ultimately their sin. And this doesn't mean that we go up to people and, like, beat them in the back of the head. But this means that ultimately the topic of sin has to come up eventually. All prophets throughout the history of Israel were charged with this task. Point to God's faithfulness, but boldly call out the reason for the brokenness that people are experiencing. This is probably the most crucial job of the prophet, to tell the people why they are suffering and to show them that they, what they must do in order to get right with God. Here's an important thing. The useful Christian is not concerned with fame or status, but rather faithfulness to the mission that he or she has been given. That's what a useful Christian looks like. All right, last part. Hang with me. Verses 11 through 16. Now, the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. It's not Oprah. Every time I see that, I want to say Oprah. All right. Which belonged to Joash, the, the Abiezerite. There we go. The Arite. We're just going to say that. While his son Gideon, there he is, was beating out wheat in the wine press to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our, fa- that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and give us an, given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the le- least of my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. All right. So we're finally introduced to our main character in this story. Now, the temptation is for us to think that I'm talking about Gideon. When I say the main character in this story, the temptation is for us to think Gideon. But I want us to see that that's not who I'm talking about. Verse 11, we're introduced to this figure, the angel of the Lord. 
Now, this is an extremely significant title. Okay, and you're going to see occasionally in the Old Testament, you're going to see this. You're going to see that there's, there's a title, there's an angel of the Lord, and then there is the angel of the Lord. Small difference in title, massive difference in who they are talking about. So what is the difference between the two? Well, what we're seeing here in Judges chapter 6 is what is known as a theophany, okay? Theological word, there we go. There's your million dollar word for the night. Theophany, or a Christophany. But we're going to say theophany, all right? Ultimately what this is, is it is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ in human bodily form. But before his incarnation in Bethlehem, right? So this is not necessarily to say that he became man, but that rather Jesus took the form of man in the Old Testament, okay? This is important for us to understand because, like, Jesus didn't just start existing in Bethlehem. What does John 1 say? That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And all things were made through him. Apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus has always existed. And Jesus is constantly throughout the Old Testament, not just as a type and shadow, but literally Jesus Christ. Now, how do we know this? Well, look at the phrasing throughout the description of this encounter. Verse 14. Does it say the angel of the Lord? No, it says, and the Lord turned to him and said. Now, that Lord, when you see in your Bible, all capital, L-O-R-D, when it's all caps, that is the divine name of God. Right? So lowercase L-O-R-D is just Lord, but all caps L-O-R-D is Yahweh. Right? So he's talking about God. God turned to him and said, verse 16, and the Lord said to him. In addition to this, we see later in the same story, Gideon respond with this statement, verse 24. Then Gideon perceived that, that it was the angel of the Lord, and Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. Now, when we hear this, why call him an angel if it's Jesus? Because Jesus is not an angel, right? Jesus is not an angel, so why call him that? Well, the Hebrew word for angel is malak. And what, and what that means, it can also be translated to messenger or representative. The same thing is true in Greek. Right? The Greek word for angel can also be translated as messenger or representative, right? So we see this in the book of Revelation, right? And when there's the letters, the seven letters to the churches. You guys tracking with me? All right. I hope I'm not going totally off the rails, right? And what is it? what do we see, like, to Sardis and Smyrna and Philadelphia and these churches and Laodicea? What does it say? To the angel of the church of Laodicea, to the angel of the church in Sardis. What is it saying? To the messenger. It's basically, it's a letter to the pastor of that church. Not like... Each church had an angel living there, right? So ultimately what we're seeing here is that this is, so Jesus is not an angel, important, but it is Jesus in bodily form in the Old Testament. All right, this passage makes this very, very clear, and we see this several other instances in Scripture. I'm just going to name a few that are actual theophanies, Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, God appearing to Abraham in Genesis 18, 
God wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32. God appearing to Joshua in Joshua 5. God appearing to Hagar in Genesis 31. God appearing to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3. Jesus in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and and Abuhu and the seven elders of Israel on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 24. God speaking to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend, Exodus chapter 33, and many, many, many more. Jesus is all over the place. And the point I want us to understand here is this, that the main character in the story of Gideon is Jesus, not Gideon. If you leave here this week and next week thinking, man, that Gideon guy is great, you've missed the point. Likewise, the main character of your story is not you, it's Jesus. Which brings us full circle. What makes someone useful for the kingdom of God? It's when they get out of the way. And they let Jesus do what Jesus does. Don't make life about you. Notice how God God addresses Gideon. Verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Why would God say this about Gideon? Why would God say to Gideon, man, you mighty man of valor? Just to give you an idea, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, I don't know if you, you don't do that. Typically, you thresh wheat on a threshing floor. But out of fear of the Midianites, he's doing this. Basically, he's virtually almost underground doing this. He's hiding. He's hiding. So why would God call him a mighty man of valor? Then Gideon will go on and say, man, like, I am the weakest. Uh, my clan's the weakest of my tribe. My family is the weakest. Like, I got nothing to give here. And God says, what, go in this might. What might? What is this might that he's talking about? It's the might that comes from understanding your own weakness but believing in God's strength. You with me? There, Paul Washer is a guy I really enjoy listening to, preacher and missionary. And he has a quote I think we would do well to, to, to hear. It says this. It says, there is no such thing as a great man of God. Only weak, pitiful, faithless men of a great and merciful God. I want you guys to understand that if you look at me or Pastor Ethan or, or if you don't go here, or the pastor of your church or, or man, that, that, that person that's like a leader in your life. And you, man, like that's a great person of God. And what, like, you need to understand that we're all just weak, faithless people putting our faith in a mighty, merciful, great God. That's what makes someone useful in the kingdom of God. They acknowledge their faults. They acknowledge their weakness, but they believe in God's strength. The strongest and therefore the most useful Christian is the one that acknowledges their weakness and depends on the Lord's strength. I've heard this said before. I don't remember where I heard it first, but I think it's, it's good. If, you were to, if I was to ask you, what is the one area of your life that you feel like you are the strongest in, in your spiritual life? The area that you feel like you're the strongest in. Maybe some of you are like, man, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm really strong when it comes to, like, 
like Bible memory or, or like sharing the gospel with people. I really feel like I'm good with that. Or maybe for some of you it's like self-control or, or maybe for some of you it's my prayer life or whatever. Like the area that you feel like, man, you're the strongest in. I want you to know that that is the area that you have the most potential to be the weakest in because it's the area that you're the least likely to depend on God. But then if I was to say, what area are you, are the, are you the weakest in? I want you to know that's probably the area where you actually have the greatest potential to be the strongest in because it's the area where you're the most likely to depend on God. I want you guys to know that the strength of the Christian, the usefulness of the Christian, comes when they just simply throw throw themselves at the feet of Jesus. It's saying, God, I have nothing to give, but God, use me. Use me. God, I have nothing to give in and of myself, but God, I know that you can do incredible things. God, if you can make a donkey talk in Scripture, you could do incredible things with my life. And God, I ask that you do incredible things with my life, not so that people will remember my name, but so that they will remember your message. That is a useful Christian. Gideon is useful not because he had a whole lot of skills. He's useful because he believed in what God could do. If you read the rest of the passage there, what you're going to see is that ultimately what what does Gideon say? He's like, God, I've heard these stories of what you have done. God, I've seen, I've heard of you do these mighty things. God, please, like, do it again. Why have you abandoned us? Well, here's the thing that you need to know. Gideon still knew that God was fully capable of doing the things that he had heard that he had done. Gideon knew that God could do whatever he wanted. And ultimately what we're going to see next week is that the only way that you do the things that Gideon does, tear down an altar to Baal when everyone wants to kill you for it, Send thousands of soldiers home and be left with only 300 as you go to fight an army of 10,000. You only do that when you acknowledge that it's not your strength that wins the battle, but it's God that wins the battle. Does this make sense? You You guys tracking with me? All right. Cool beans. Well, I don't have a super smooth way of ending this, but... The end. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but hey, here's what I want you guys to understand. As you leave here tonight, right, find confidence in what Jesus has done for you. And some of you are like, man, I, I don't even know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Like, I don't, don't mean to make this super harsh, but like, the only way that you'll ever have purpose and meaning and usefulness with your life is by first surrendering your life to Christ. I heard a quote a few weeks ago that was really, really powerful. And it says, my greatest fear in life is not failing. My greatest fear in life is succeeding in things that don't matter. I think we got a lot of people that are succeeding in things that just don't matter. Don't leave this place seeking to succeed in things that don't matter. Leave this place wanting to be used by God. 